So uh, I'm, I'm, you, you may think, Benjamin, how do you follow Scott? You don't. You just give it up. It's fine. Well, I tell you, I'm kind of used to it. Uh, in 03, you may not know this about Scott. Scott won the, the talent show for Harding for uh, beatboxing and being handsome at the same time, which is hard to do. And then uh, the next year, I won it for doing an impression of Alanis Morissette and being handsome at the same time. So, I mean, we're pretty much the same. Both of those skills don't transfer into real life at all. Like, no, we can't do that at the hospital for sick people uh, very well. But uh, I've always enjoyed Scott and I'm um, thankful for him uh, and for for David for leading our song, for Leif for leading us in prayer. And listen, Corbin, uh, Corbin has stepped up. Judy's not here. And Corbin has stepped up and done the slides, and he's done a great job. Um, that's hard to do. That's panic-inducing. Just imagine going to church and having to pay attention the whole time. It's tough. And he's, he's done it. I'm, I'm, I'm proud of him. Uh, I, yes. I, um, I think we need to, as a church, for a second, uh, talk about wine uh, and kisses. Um, but first, um, we need to talk about uh, the Song of Songs. Song of Songs is called the Song of Songs because it's the greatest song. To say the Song of Songs is a, is a Hebrew way of saying the greatest song. So if you wanted to say this is the greatest taco, you would say this is the taco of tacos. So Song of Songs, tacos of tacos, we've got that figured out. Now, for a long time, there's been a hard, uh, we've had to figure out the interpreters of Song of Songs, has, they've had to decide, is this an allegory or should it be interpreted allegorically? Like, should it not really mean what it means, but mean something else? Should it be about our relationship with God or should it be about our relationship with each other? And as you probably know from my uh, understanding of Bible and of Christian life, I don't think we have to choose. I don't think we have to decide, is this some sort of uh, God and his people, or is it how relationships um, work? I think it's actually both. And I think it's beautifully written, and I think it wouldn't be the Song of Songs if it didn't accomplish two things. It wouldn't be the Song of Songs if it didn't accomplish both our relation, if it didn't comment on both our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. And we're going to be pretty straightforward with some things. Obviously, there are children in the room, so we will talk as we go through this, the next three weeks, we will talk about intimacy and we will talk about um, relations and stuff like that. We will use words that will, that you will understand, but maybe your kids might not, and I will try to steer free from double entendre. I will actually do that more than Song of Songs does, um, because I think the I think the information in the uh, the text and the poetry in Song of Songs is too important to turn into a cheeky subject, to use a British word. We're not going to do this like second graders discovering a poem 
for the first time. We're going to talk about it openly, but in a way, kid-friendly. So if um, I hope you can follow most of the time. Song of Songs is uh, essentially a poem spoken by, most of the time, a woman. A woman, uh, it's, I did the math, it's like 57% of the Song of Songs is spoken by a woman about her man, about her shepherd, about her king, she will say. Sometimes king just means he's the one I respect. In Hebrew, you could use that word for the actual king or for someone who is in charge. So she is longing for her man, and he is in the field and at times longing for his woman. And the first lines of Song of Songs give us this beautiful indication of what intimacy and what relationships should look like, both an intimate relationship with your spouse and an intimate relationship with God. The first lines are, kiss me, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is perfume poured out. Therefore, the maidens love you. Draw me after you. Let us make haste. The king has brought me into his chambers. He will exalt and rejoice in you. Or we will exalt and rejoice in you. So this first little poem is indicative of the whole Song of Songs in that it demands and anticipates action. Kiss me. Come near. Be with me. Come into the chambers. Action within the relationship. Now, in a, in a marriage relationship, in an intimate relationship, it does no good to talk about how you're going to kiss more. That's a worthless conversation. Because you could have been kissing. Why talk about the thing when you can do the thing? Why examine why, well, why don't we do that? Well, I don't know. Maybe the Song of Songs should have started with, shut up and kiss me. Because the action of a kiss is, is intimate, it's immediate, it's, it's a request. She's saying, let him kiss me. I don't know why she had to specify, with the kisses of his mouth. It's a, she's not specifying anything. That's very emphatic. She's saying, kiss me and, and yeah, do it. That's, a, that's her way of saying, kiss me. So she's demanding this action of intimacy. And a lot of times, we talk about intimacy. But we don't experience it. Whether it's in our marital relationships or our relationships with our kids, I should hug my kids more. Well, don't tell me. Go hug them. Whether it's in our 
Um, but it also if it's in our relationship with God. I would venture to say that people talk about wanting to pray more than they pray more. Just pray. You may say, well, I don't know what to say. Well, don't say anything. You can just be in the presence of God. But wanting to be in the presence of God, the next step is some action. You've got to do the thing. But look what she, she says in that first little bit. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. All right, I know none of you know what wine does to your body. Don't give it away by snickering. We're one of the holy places. So, wine, uh, I've been told, you be quiet, frees up one uh, to have a better conversation. To go to what the world calls a bar. Um, what you'll find is people coming in, sitting down at the bar quietly, ordering a drink. This thing called alcohol that they're putting in their system. And they sit there quietly and drink their beer or there are other things we don't know the names of. And what you'll find by the time they leave is they're talking to strangers. And in honor of St. Patrick's Day, in a good Irish pub, singing with strangers. I had a youth intern one time that led singing like this. Like he had... He kept the rhythm, you know, you're supposed to keep the time, you know, the one, two, three, four, one. He just did it like this. Oh, I -dee, I -dee, I -dee, I -dee, I I'm like, I said, it looks like you have a mug in your hand and you're singing it in an Irish pub. Like either don't do it or don't. He's, and his response was, you know, most of our melodies come from old Irish bar songs. Okay, good to know. Still don't do that. That's fine. Just don't do it. But we, we sing with strangers. Now what's funny is the only two places that happens is in Irish pubs and churches. You never see that happening at Target. We sing with, and so what, what happens with, with wine is that it, it, it creates a level of intimacy that often doesn't happen without it. But she's saying, and she's acknowledging that, in this context, that's what she means, is that wine promotes intimacy or connection or community. In the Old Testament, most of the time, when you see the words wine, like um, in the visions of the kingdom come, it says, and wine will flow from the mountaintop. That means peace, the lack of stress or anxiety in the community. 
And she says, your love is better than wine. A lot of us are here because we are tired of the temporary things that cause community, that give intimacy. So while wine might be effective, it is only effective for a bit. And she says, what I need is not wine, but a kiss. What I need is better than wine. I need love. I need intimacy and I need connection. Church committees, planning meetings, are not, do not achieve the goals of wine. But love is better than wine. We've, we need community. We need connection. We are longing for it. We long for it so much that we talk about it a lot. What we need. I, well, you know, we really need to be doing this. We really need, as a marriage, we need to be doing this thing and we need to be doing that thing. Well, you might need to just kiss. You might just need the, the intimacy of immediate action. You might need to just pray. You might need to just love because the loving community of faith is, is better than anything the world has to offer. I really need to go to church more, you may say. Go. We have this thing in our heads um, that uh, writers have called different things throughout time. Um, there's a book called um, The War of Art. It's not The Art of War. It's The War of Art. And the author's name has left me, but it's the same guy who wrote The Legend of Bagger, uh, Bagger Vance. You know, that book. Uh, he, he calls it The Resistance. So you may say, I need to run, or I need to exercise, or I need to eat better, or I need to stop eating sweets, or I need to um, get my degree, or I want to go back to school, or I want to I want to get licensed in that particular profession, or I want to study this, or read more, or like we have all the things in our head that we want to do, and we think about doing them all the time. I want to be better organized. I need to clean out this thing. I need whatever it is that you need to do. We think about doing those things we think oh man if i could just do that then it'll be better if i can just do this and things will be fine but when it comes to doing them we make excuses so we've got these two sides of us where we know it would be good to do a thing but then when we think about doing the thing we we feel this tug of resistance Satan would be really happy if you just thought about doing the right thing and then felt pretty good about it. 
That's where we get. You know, they say that whenever you start a diet, brain scientists, you know, all the brain scientists I talk to, they say that when you start a diet or an exercise program or a degree program or you start a new thing in your life that you shouldn't tell anybody. Now, this is a new occurrence. Actually, this the study came out about two or three years ago, and before that, they were saying, tell everybody so everyone can hold you accountable. And then some, some neuros, neuroscientists came in and said, actually, when you tell someone, you feel this, the same chemicals go through your body that would have gone through your body is if, if you would have succeeded at your goal. So when you tell somebody you're on a diet or you're exercising or you're doing this thing, you get the feeling that you've done it, and so you feel good, and so you quit. They've actually, they've actually pinned down that thinking and talking about doing the right thing feels just as good as actually doing the right thing. But talking about doing the right thing isn't as good as doing the right thing. And we all know this because talking about kissing doesn't feel as good as kissing. Talking about love does not feel as good as love. It's not as good. It's, it's a phony currency that isn't worth anything. Your relationship with God and your relationship with others, specifically your relationship with your spouse, there's a good chance you've talked about what you need to do too much. And you just need to do what you need. Now, sometimes that's a kiss. Sometimes that's a prayer. Sometimes with your spouse, that's a conversation that you have to have. You've, you've just got to have it. You don't want to have that conversation, but you got to. Now, that might not even be a big thing, guys. That may be something small where you say, um, I've, I've been wanting A, B, or C, and I've been trying to sort of hint at it, to sort of like, oh, well, you know, it would be nice if you know. And you're... Maybe your husband doesn't speak wife, and maybe your wife doesn't speak husband. I'm guessing that's the case. And so maybe you're going to have to have a hard conversation in which you have to say, I need this. That's what I need. Now, I'll tell you another way that we abandon those conversations we get really good at telling other people what they need. You need to. But acknowledging in ourselves what we need for intimacy, what we need for love, what we need for that, that, that experience of loving another human being, and as we've talked about before, your experience with loving another human being affects your experience with loving God. Those are tied together so tightly that you can't do one very well without the other. And that when you do one well, it lifts up the other. And when you do the other well, it lifts up the one. 
So your relationship with God improves your marriage. And your healthy marriage improves your relationship with God. And it just works back and forth. But some of the things that are holding us up is we're not telling God what we need. And that's an intimate thing. Because anytime you talk about what you need, it's a vulnerability. You go to the ER and you don't tell them how to paint their walls. You go to the ER because you need something. You're vulnerable. My limb is hanging off of my body. I need something. I'm weak. I'm sick. And so when you go to your spouse and you say, I need a thing, what you're saying is, I'm vulnerable and I'm trusting you with it. And so whenever the, the, the poet here says, kiss me, she's expressing a need of intimacy. And she's opening herself up to the possibility that she will be wounded in the process. I've had people tell me, people who've been broken and hurt by relationships, they will tell me I will... I'll start dating again, I will get married again when it's clear that I'm not going to be hurt. And I always try to lead them to this point. You should start dating again and you should get married again when you're okay with being hurt again. Because marriage is vulnerable. Relationships just by definition, ask you to let yourself open up to where someone, Rachel, Rachel could stand up here and ruin me. Ruin me. We've spent the past 14 years together. Right? 13. 13 years together. We've been married for 12 of those years. We dated for a year and a half before, year and three months. Rachel's throwing math at me. Her math scowl. But she she knows everything I've ever done. Guys, most of your wives could get you fired. But it's not that they know who you really are. It's that they know who you are at your weakest. They knew, know who you are at your, broke, at your most broken. And a healthy relationship is one that sees the brokenness and chooses not to put their finger on the sore spot but chooses instead to show grace and mercy and kindness and love. What I'm saying is for someone to see you at your most broken and then choose to redeem you instead of hurt you is at its core the most loving thing someone can do. So the possibility of being hurt is absolutely necessary in healthy 
love. The likelihood that you could be wounded, the fact that you are vulnerable, is absolutely necessary to love. And so God looks at us and saw our vulnerability and then came to earth and was vulnerable in, his, in himself. Needed things himself. I am thirsty. I don't want to do this. Let this cup pass from me. Jesus needed things, became vulnerable for us because he saw that we were vulnerable to him. And he, Jesus, God, through Jesus, produced the other half of relationship that can actually produce covenant love. He matched our vulnerability to redeem our vulnerability. So God is desperate for a relationship with you. And I can guarantee you that you've tried all the other things. You've tried buying things you want. You've tried, um, you've, you've tried all, these, um, all these hobbies, all these sports, all the... All, Maybe some of you might have at a weak moment at a wedding tried wine or maybe last night, whatever. But you know it doesn't last. But the relationships that we're building with each other as a church, with each other in our marriages, with each other in God, those last. It's not perfect all the time, but it will last all the time. So this, what God demands of us is not action for the sake of intimacy, but action because he loves us and wants a connection with us. With us. Your relationship with your spouse and your relationship with God should feel more similar than they actually do. Not that your spouse is to be your God. That is a, that is a horrible mistake that newlyweds make. They will answer my every need. Okay. That's the hardest part of premarital counseling is not laughing all the time. But your relationship with your spouse, like how you're vulnerable to them and they're vulnerable to you and y'all redeem each other's weaknesses instead of, in, in, instead of using them as a tool to get your own way. The thing I love about Rachel the most is that she refuses to rub my face in my own shame. And God, that, that's the thing I love about God the most. Is that we, he refuses to see us as the broken. You know, sometimes we pray to God like that. We'll say, God, 
uh, you know, I'm an awful human being, and I'm gross, and I have, you know, sinus congestion, and we're like nasty people, God. And, and God sees us for what he loves in us and refuses to rub our faith in our shame. But he lifts us up and sits us in his throne room and demands intimacy from us. Not just because we need it from him, but because he wants, God wants intimacy from us. Listen, the Song of Songs is good. And it, and it shows us a God who desires us. And we're going to look at what that looks like over the next couple of weeks. But just for now, I want you to know as it, as it comes, as it pertains to your marriage, be vulnerable. Show them your weakness. And let them love that too. And that will change so much. Just say out loud what you want. What you need. But in relationship with God, I want you to realize that God desires you. Not just to come to church, not just to check the boxes, not just to... God wants you to be in His presence. And he did so much to get you there. Gave up so much. Jesus died and conquered, experienced death, and then conquered death for you. Now, here comes the part that might demand an action. Whether it's you're telling your spouse or you're telling a friend, I need to change, or whether you're actually standing up and acting and coming down front. Whether it is you need God and you've never had God. Whether, it, whether you need to be united with Jesus through his death, burial, and resurrection and baptism. And you've never done that. Whether you need the prayers of the church or you need just counseling from an elder or um, from a, just one of the wise people. Like what we say here is you can come forward, but sometimes you might need to go backward or go sideways. You might just find somebody that, needs to, that you need to pray with, that you need to connect with. Pray with me can be just as intimate as kiss me, or it can be just as intimate as come forward. It can be just as, there, the actions, though, that we're calling, that God is calling us to are never, please, talk a little longer about how you should probably get better. But what God is calling us to is to act today. And if you're feeling the resistance, you're feeling the, uh, the pull, like, no, no, no. I grew up in the Church of Christ, and you don't go forward unless you want that whole congregation talking about you. You're feeling the tug of, no, I, no. 
potluck, people are going to be hungry and they're going to be mad at me. You're making excuses. If you feel the tug, it's a good indicator that you should break free and come forward. Go sideways, go backward, grab somebody, come talk to me. Act. Do it right now as we stand and pray.